Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the 11th episode of Credit Crunch, part of the FICC uh, podcast stream. This is Mahesh Bhimalingam, uh, Chief European Credit Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of uh, Bloomberg LLP. Uh, independent research, unbiased, and it's all available on the Bloomberg terminal. So today, we, we have a very interesting guest. You know, normally we we spend most of the time talking to guests in London and New York, uh, but today we got we're going to get some diversity in uh, Credit Voice. So we go to sunny France, and uh, we have Benoit Soleil. Uh, he's the head of uh, head of credit and senior portfolio manager at uh, Karen Finance. Uh, he's ex AXA, Rothschild, and Ellipsis. Uh, high yield expert, but uh, covers both uh, investment grade and high yield in uh, Europe. So welcome, Benvo. Hey, Mahesh. Uh, so for inviting me. Our pleasure. It's a it's our pleasure to get uh, particularly someone from the regions. So I think you know the first topic we should discuss is you know the market, particularly in terms of uh, size and uh, growth, not in terms of returns. But in terms of volume, seems to be struggling a bit, particularly high yield, even investment grade also in, let's say, April, where we saw negative net supply and the index shrank. So for the benefit of our listeners, uh, just to give you a scale, this year, euro high yield shrank by 28 billion already on top of the 30 billion last year. So the index is about like 58 billion smaller than at the end of 2021. Uh, investment grade, yes, has grown 74 billion, but this is nowhere close to what the US is growing in terms of size. We actually saw a shrinkage in April. So, Benno, what is your view on you know the market growth and uh, do you think that will get reversed? No, it's a very interesting topic because, uh, as you clearly mentioned, it's one of the first years where we saw the market, the credit market shrinking in size. <clears throat> But if I may, I think it would be also interesting to put back some figures in, uh, in mind and also in perspective. We have all to remember that the euro credit market, the public market, grew between 6 and uh, 13%. It was roughly 6% G-rate per year for the last 20 years. It's roughly 13% for the euro in market. And I think for me, it was clearly a function of the quantitative easing and also the fact that post the great financial crisis, a lot of banks have a huge incentive to, to in fact, to, to move from private debt to public debt and take some nice syndication fees. So it was a, a great deal for everyone, less needs of capital and more, more return for banks. And, and now it's a very tricky point because we are moving from a quantitative easing area from a quantitative tightening area. And uh, so I think uh, this market may probably shrink for coming years, and but for a lot of different reasons. For me, the main first reason is probably through issuer. 
because uh, the, of course the funding cost for Ishua will be much higher. And if you compare, you, you mentioned the investment grade space uh, at the moment, if you have to refinance the whole uh, debt in the markets, it would be more than twice the interest cost per year. And we are speaking about roughly 100 billion euro potential cost interest per year on the investment grade space. And uh, at the moment, we have not seen any uh, earning recession. EBITDA margin are really at the top. And so my view is that a lot of management will be much more focused on gross debt deleveraging coming uh, in, in coming years. Yeah. So, so Benoit has already mentioned, you know, the, the cost angle in investment grade. The, the corresponding number in high yield is like about two and a half times. So which means if you want to issue a new bond or uh, replacing an old bond, it's going to cost you about two and a half times what the old bond costed uh, when you compare yields versus coupons on the index. At, with such dynamics, you know, it is going to be a bit of a struggle unless uh, a company is desperate in, in terms of needs of liquidity, which is not the case as uh, Benoit has already highlighted. Uh, so um, moving on to, uh, uh, you know, which sectors do you see are the ones where there are there is the greatest struggle? Uh, you know, we are, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's quite interesting because if you analyze the evolution of index, both on investment grade and high yield, you saw that you have a major switch in the index composition through years. For example, uh, if you are looking to real estate, real estate market in the investment grade European sector was probably less than 1% early 2010. It's now roughly eight or nine. I don't have the exact figure in mind, but it's it's fairly massive now. And we all know what can be the potential uh, problem or in this uh, in this particular sector. But we are discussing from France, so I have also a, a quite interesting data. When I start in this industry uh, early 2000, in fact, you had roughly six or seven issuers in the euro yield index. In 2010, it was 30 to 35, and now it's above 100. And for me, it's a very important point because most of the growth in this uh, credit market is not through the big uh, blue chips corporate, is mostly with small and tiny companies. And if we take the angle of the euro yield, it's probably a lot of companies with an EBITDA range of 50 to 150 million, with probably only one issue. And for this company, it's also, it's also a problem because they have to manage with public information. And they, they, before, they used to manage that through banks, pool of banks. And so it's a lot of efforts. And I think they don't really like also to see their bond trading 70, 80, 85. So one of the other reasons I see the market shrinking is that you may have a return of competition from banks, but also some other actors like uh, uh, private debt. You see uh, recently what Apollo said about the fact that uh, the, the public fixed income market will shrink and will probably move to something much more private but also by the fact that some companies will probably, if they can't, they will decide to exit the public market because it can be a bit painful for them in terms of uh, operation. Yeah, especially given uh, 
you know, capital rules for banks, they have stepped out, stepped off from uh, lending to many companies despite the ECB's best efforts. But that yeah. that money flew into public markets during the QE era. But now the rules are still in place. So what is happening is this roundabout way of lending to you know small companies that wouldn't have got funding directly from banks. So banks are lending to let's say private equity or uh, these direct lending programs of investors who are actually getting a lending facility from banks. So quite interesting what is going on. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. As long as banks can find a cheap funding in the market because we have really nice Cartesian ratio and uh, and they can do some spread by lending through corporate, I think the level of, co of competition may increase because banks know well all these companies. They have been lenders for years. Uh, so it will be a fairly interesting uh, technical aspect of the market in coming years, for sure. Yeah, but uh, one thing I want to note at this, uh, you know, given the topic of lending uh, is, you know, uh, given the macro environment right now, uh, if you look at the ECB uh, lending standards uh, to companies uh, by in the bank survey that conducted by the ECB, they are at their tightest right now financial conditions remain very tight uh, in, in Europe, I'm talking about, because despite the ECB's best efforts, even during QE era, uh, using the Teltros uh, and the standard refi programs, banks didn't lend. Now, it is actually going the other way. Uh, there is a sort of, there is a sort of lending uh, contraction uh, through standards or through financial conditions. Now, that brings us to the point, Will if that goes to an extreme in the next uh, three to six months, would you think that, you know, some investment-grade companies will become fallen angels and some high-yield companies uh, fall down in terms of defaults? Uh, yes, it's one of the main ways. But as you know, the, the debt maturity profile in Europe is fairly okay yep. at the moment. Most of the companies yep. have really well used the last three years to refinance and push down the debt. As, as I mentioned, I think we will see, a, and it's what kind of discussion we have with a lot of management of uh, European companies we follow. Uh, clearly, they know that. They know that the cost of funding will increase. They know that you have some windows opportunities in the market and you don't want to lose it. It's, it's why it's a, a bit weird for me to see that in June, we don't expect a lot of primary in high yield. Whereas me as a CFO, for example, I will rush to find funding even if I have to pay. And it's one of the main differences you have in between uh, Europe and US is that I think that uh, US companies are much more proactive and are really less scared to, uh, to pay a, a big coupon and after they will use uh, the all their call option. So yeah, if the liquidity freeze, we may, we may face some problem. Now, if you are looking to the current level of leverage, the current level of interest coverage, and also the fact that the liquidity and balance sheet are really, really high, I don't see an immediate wave of default, except if we have a really major recession ahead. And on this point, major recession ahead, it's also fairly complex because uh, even myself, I'm quite bearish on that. Uh, but the fact that technicals are really supportive, 
you you can't ignore that. Yeah, that's perfect because that's our published view too. That uh, we we don't see a default wave in Europe, unlike the US, where on a day you you saw some eight defaults. That sort of stuff is not going to happen in Europe. We published that uh, you know in terms of candidates, you know triple C and below, there are only like four or five credits in the entire yeah. index. So and it's already priced for default. It's already priced exactly. So you have lots of companies at 50, 60, 75. Yeah. So. so if you look at the total uh, distress ratio in the index, it is running at about 4%. And typically, a third of them might default in the next year, two years. So that's going to get you to like a 1.3% on the index. That is next to nothing uh, compared to I the... think we, we will have more soft restructuring coming ahead. You will yep. see a lot of companies. And when mentioned investment grade, you see the case on investment grade, especially on real estate. Yes. I think you, you will see much more uh, equity enfin, equity style of uh, injection in order to, to do Dutch auction on a, on a very low cash price debt. And it's a way, in fact, to, uh, I know it can be a technical default, but as long as it's a Dutch auction and voluntary action, it's not a default. So it's really the question of the bondholder to really want to exit the position because they've done a mistake by uh, by buying very low coupon on a potential uh, bad a, companies. Yeah, in a yield-raising so environment. Now, so, so so continuing on the topic, you know, we saw the the Swedish real estate company SBB go down. Uh, so the, this month it was a large fall in Angel. But interestingly, if you look at this year, Rising Star still uh, beat uh, the amount of fallen angels in Euro investment grade high yield in terms of transition uh, across each other. Uh, there seems to be a continuous stream of Rising Stars. I think. Now, you know, one of the theories I have is in an inflationary environment, you know, not too much inflation, uh, but, you know, inflation that is gently going down. Uh, what the scenario you're going to have is the earnings, especially in positive margin companies, are going to be deleveraging your balance sheet, especially mm -hmm. if you're not issuing enough debt, as we discussed, you know, in our first section. So what we are seeing is actually good leverage numbers, interest coverage holding uh, as earnings hold in an inflationary environment. And as a result, uh, you know, you're still seeing uh, rising stars. We're not yeah. we're not seeing like a wave of fallen angels. They're seeing one a month. No, clearly, because at the moment, EBITDA margin has been really, really good. And, and yeah. when you see uh, even myself, I'm quite surprised about uh, how good the Q1 result were. And it's because most of the companies have really well managed the inflation last year. Uh, when they saw the pickup of inflation during the first semester of 2022, they roughly edged all their commodities input. They, they also edged uh, most of their input segments, like uh, transportation, for example. And, and now they, they have been able to pass through on their price. And, and now, even in France, we start to see some uh, huge debates about the fact that, uh, especially for food companies, uh, now it's probably time to decrease the price because uh, input costs have been reduced. And you saw uh, some problem with politicians saying that now it's maybe time to, to 
to see some price decrease. So it's also a question that inflation, even core inflation, should probably uh, now decrease slowly over the coming uh, month. Mm, yeah, I agree. I agree. Unless you are the UK, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you are a specific animal, sorry. Yeah, I know. So we, sp we spoke about technicals, uh, particularly supply and fundamentals. So how about demand? Particularly, what do you see in France in terms of is there is the demand for public listed credit uh, going up, both retail and institutional? And uh, also, if you sh can shed some light on uh, investor demand for private paper, uh, if you if you have some visibility on that. Yeah, but clearly, we clearly saw a pickup in demand for, for public credit. But one of the first things you have to remember is that the level of fixed income in the allocation of both institutional and retail clients was very, very low the last five years. I'm coming from a pure institutional uh, real money asset management business. Is that, because, Karen, is, that, is that because the French love equity too much? Yeah, but I, I think just because, in fact, the, the potential return was so low associated with the risk of duration. Yep. Even for people who are really obliged to have an allocation in fixed income, it was at the minimum. And it was the case for most of my institutional clients in France, in Switzerland, in Benelux. So, so even on institutional side, when normally you have a big chunk of your allocation on fixed income products, they have massively reduced that and moved to equity, to alternative, to real estate, yeah. to a lot of other assets. I mean, when, in, when investment grade pays you like 0.4%, you have no hope, right? I know. You know, uh, I launched a product in a, it was a crossover ESG product in uh, February 2021. The inception yield of the book was a bit above 1%. Okay. But you have to remember that at that time, the boon was at minus 0.5%. Yeah, I know, I know. So, so it's one of the problems. And it's even worse on the retail because when I joined Karen, Karen is much more with a, a distribution retail network client. Uh, in fact, most of the clients I saw in 2020, 2021 had no fixed income product on their allocation. They had structural product, real estate, equity, everything except fixed income. And now, which is quite funny, is that we start to see both effects. In institutional, you start to see uh, in uh, all the panel published by uh, advisor or on the specialist price, you see that the weight of fixed income is increasing massively. Yeah. Now it's now not far from 45 to 50%. But also from right retail clients, we have we saw a lot of uh, L2 maturity funds launch during the second semester of 2022, especially in France. And just to give you another idea, you have like 20 to 25 funds, or now it's probably more than 25 funds, on what we call all to maturity funds with uh, final maturity 26, 7, 8, 9. And uh, in September 2022, it was probably 500 to 1 billion asset under management under this scope, and uh, we reached 5 billion. Right. In seven months. Yeah, I mean... A so, lot of demands from retail. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, 
from 0.4 percent now we are at four and a half nearly i mean 4.3 four and a half percent on ig and about nearly eight percent in high yield i mean that should be the poster isn't it in any in every fund management house but clearly because one of the questions the equity so far it's the real question because all fixed income managers have advocated to say that 2023 2024 should be fixed income years and so far it's a nice decent return on fixed income both investment grade on a yield but if you compare to equity it's not it's not that good no. yeah. and it's a lot of question but but people clearly understand that if you can have as you said four five percent on debt on very good investment grade companies or seven eight nine or even ten percent if you are taking more risk on a high space why buying a lot of equities with the current level of uncertainties in terms of geopolitics in terms of monetary option in terms of everything in fact yeah but i think i i think why equities are still benefiting is you know we are still in a elevated uh, inflation era and mm -hmm. equities are pro-inflation pro while bonds given fixed income particularly rates i'm not talking credit particularly rates you know you don't tend to do well so if you look at if you look at rates returns this year a disaster last year, disaster. Last year disaster. total disaster this year also disaster so the, the problem is credit credit tends to be seen as like the you know the stepbrother of rates right in fixed income and then we don't tend to get that allocation uh via you know away from equities uh within fixed income we are okay i think there is no other place better than credit both of us agree uh i but, would agree too <laughs> but uh, you know when you look across all assets the problem is we get siloed with rates and uh, you know rates haven't haven't had a great year so on that so continuing on that topic so in this sort of environment with the sort of uh, you know uh, disintermediation in terms of public versus private you know the net supply that we are seeing but growing demand in fixed income who are the players who are benefiting a lot uh, and who are losing out in in france or across europe well to be honest uh, in a, it's always loser and uh, winners and uh, it really depends of uh, if you mean about who is gaining market share, uh, if I'm really taking a look on uh, on specific, for sure there was huge demand for some all to maturity fund on investment grade side. Uh, I have one fund in mind. I, I won't disclose the name, but you can easily find out that, that has been launched in September, and now the fund is above one billion, which is a massive success. Yeah, really massive success. Uh, but there's a lot of competition, so it's uh, also a question: How do you market your position positioning on credit? Uh, yeah, so at the moment, for sure, on the public debt, all two maturity funds have attracted a lot of money, but on the open-ended fund, for the more used classic funds, the the inflow are not that great. So it's. Yeah, it's, it's like, in fact, a big chunk of uh, inflows, especially on retails, have been really focused on all to maturity funds for right. now. Uh, so that's on the fund side. Uh, how do you, who is benefiting 
on the you know on the supply side i mean are the our issuers uh been ah, you mean in terms of uh, compression uh, but at the moment in fact you you have a roughly uh, every kind of issuer have uh, so far an access to the market it will be fairly much more complex for triple c issuer but uh, you you had a lot of single b issuer who have come on the market the last two months they have to pay so they, they paid uh, eight nine ten even higher for some of them, but they have an access to the market. And even even uh, bah, even today, we have a, a new French issuer who is rolling his 2025 debt. Hmm. Um, and we are speaking about a coupon near 8.5% for five years. Right. I'll do, uh, and finally, be, before I move on in terms of uh, winners and losers, how banks done well? How their I I suspect their fees has come down uh, quite a bit on the it's on the DPM. Not that much, not that much. You you have a huge level of competition uh, two three years ago on syndication fees, uh, but when you are taking a look to the the fees part on the deal at the moment, not that much. It's still a one and a half, one one and a half two percent. So. Yeah. It's more complex, in fact, to issue debt. Huh? Okay, they don't have now, uh, since COVID, you don't have the, what you used to have, a lot of uh, roadshow in nice hotel. Uh, so it's probably less expensive for banks with digitalization to issue debt. But, but you have also to find uh, where is the demand. So we mentioned uh, L2 maturity fund, but you have also insurers, you have private banks, you have also hedge funds for your... You have a lot of potential clients for 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 credit. That's a one and a half points. And so far, there's not a huge competition on that. Huh? One and a half points well, sounds like back to good old days in terms of fees. That's quite yeah, a lot. You know, even money market funds at the moment. Uh, two years ago, you have money market funds with uh, bah, roughly no management fees because bah, you have roughly no return, no potential return on money market instrument. And even now, we are, we are seeing some uh, asset managers who are increasing the management fees of money market funds. Yeah. And it's fairly normal. Yeah. I guess, I guess, I guess given that the asset play pays you a lot in terms of carry, I think everybody can take their own share of the, of the pie. So with that, I think we should move to, you know, some, uh, you know, market intricacies in terms of change in regulations and uh, products. So the first thing I I can see is, uh, you know, the uh, the French have been at the forefront of uh, the ESG, uh, you know, introduction into credit. Now, we've seen a lot of uh, green, social and sustainable bonds as well as funds. Uh, can you shed some light on, you know, what sort of demand are you seeing? What sort of increased uh, regulation you are seeing in delivering those funds uh, to clients? Uh, for sure, it has been a big, big rush, uh, both in terms of uh, new product launch, uh, I would say since 2018, and, uh, and also in terms of issuer would like to, to, to benefit from that by issuing a sustainable green social bond, and uh, especially in real estate, for example. Huh? We have a lot of real estate issuers we should... Uh, sustainable or green bonds uh, in 2020-21. Uh, now, what we see in terms of regulation is that, as you know, we have in Europe the SFDR 
regulation. So you have three kind of uh, class of fund. You have the what we call Article 6, Article 8, or Article 9. Uh, the 6 is really the less constraint in terms of ESG. The 9 is really a kind of impact fund with a lot of uh, demand on uh, on the how you construct and how you manage your portfolio in terms of ESG. Mm. Uh, for sure, uh, we are seeing in France at the moment the regulation becoming much more strict about that because they don't want to have a lot of people or asset managers saying that they manage art Article 9 funds or with a lot of ESG, but in fact, uh, they are putting a lot of oil companies in, a lot of this kind of stuff. A and now we see the regulation coming uh, much more strict. And uh, so, so maybe we will see uh, on this specific topic uh, less Article 9 funds. But if you have an Article 9 funds, it will be a really dedicated ESG fund with uh, you know, a strong data, strong view on impact, uh, this kind of thing. I guess, I guess this, is, this is to prevent greenwashing on, uh, on the fund side because what we are seeing on the on the bond side on the underlying securities is there is quite a bit of uh, dissatisfaction in terms of greenwashing and many bonds getting this social responsibility sticker so at least at the fund level uh, they are asking you guys to ensure that uh, your in terms of portfolio construction uh, some of this greenwashed bonds don't make it in maybe yeah, but, but you know, you have also, you have uh, some audits. So, because uh, some of these funds have uh, labels. Uh, in France, we have also uh, one dedicated labels, but there's uh, also some in Europe. And, and you see that the level of audit and the level of regulation through these labels are clearly increasing. And right. for example, for, for one of the, I know well, because one of my funds is labelized, um, the in 2020 and 21, you need an exclusion of 20% of your index of the less of, of the company with a not good ESG data. And now we are speaking about moving to 30%. Right. So it's one third of your index that you can't invest just because they don't have a good ESG data. Right, right. Uh, just for the benefit of our listeners, you know, the, the green bond market in Europe has gone from, you know, effectively zero in 2014, 0% of the index, to about 12% of the index now, raw. So, you know, I would predict that, uh, you know, in another two years or so, we'll probably get towards 20. And then all of you guys, all credit investors should start paying attention actively. Uh, we have a green uh, credit quarterly. Uh, once it gets to this 15-20%, we'll probably do a monthly on it. Now, uh, on the topic of regulation, uh, one area of credit that probably needs new rules could be the CDS market. Oh I mean, my me, God. Me, and, <laughs> me and Benoit both are very familiar with CDS and uh, credit events and where a credit event hasn't done what it should on the CDS market. I mean, going back in our... Uh, in our histories, uh, looking at uh, 2009 problems, 2011 problems, uh, and even now, we've had two issues. 
So briefly, let's talk about, you know, what has been the experience of Credit Suisse in France? And then we'll talk about the other troubled child later. Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure that a lot of uh, real real money manager, you don't, we don't have a lot of H1 in Paris, but uh, uh, were involved in the CDS of Credit Suisse. I, I don't have a lot of details on that, to be honest. One, one of my understanding is much more about uh, the 81, uh, what happened to the 81 and not on the CDS fact. For me, one of the questions we have on the CDS is that it's becoming fairly complex to really understand when you trigger <laughs> a default or not. And you mentioned about Credit Suisse. For me, uh, okay, for me, it's a nonsense to not trigger a CDS, Which... not based on a pure legal aspect. And I completely understand that you have legal aspects, Which... but more on the DNA of why you have CDS. Correct. No, so, so talking in terms of principle, not law, would you believe that the senior CDS should have triggered or the sub-CDS should have triggered or none should have triggered or both should have triggered? Based on under, underlying economic economical aspect of Credit Suisse, 200%. Because w when you have the Swiss regulator who said that one day later Credit Suisse may have collapsed, for me, it doesn't make any sense to say that you, you don't trigger. After, there's some legal aspect, and what we mentioned. And it starts to be much more complex about what happens if you have merger, what happens if you... You know, there's a lot of different aspects on that. But yeah, uh, that, that's not just a credit event story. It's a succession story as well. I mean, there are so many layers to it. Oh, yeah. We, we can spend uh, three hours discussing that. So. Yeah. So you believe that both sub and senior should have triggered? On As I said, not on legal aspects. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, contract, in but more on the philosophy, philosophy of the CDS. Based on the philosophy of the CDS, yes. Now, but but you, you, can't, you can't manage only based on philosophy. So, yeah, I know. of course, you, you need some law to, to regulate everything. Of course, of course. Now, coming to the, you know, talking about the next potential credit event or non-event is, you know, a French credit has been causing trouble in high yield, particularly in the crossover. You know, whenever I publish my, you know, we do a monthly iTrax alert, uh, that part, one particular credit has been a pain on many aspects, whether it is, you know, whether we are calculating intrinsic, whether we are doing crossover skew, now whether we are doing crossover dispersion, everywhere we have to exclude that one particular credit, otherwise it messes up the results. So, there has been an issue where those guys were in trouble and then that there's been a conciliation uh, effort with the French government. Can you shed some light on that particular credit? I won't take yeah. the name, I'll let you do it. It's, uh, it's also very complex because, uh, you know, conciliation is a new aspect of the French law based on uh, potential restructuring. And uh, it's, in fact, it's a step ahead of what we call safeguard in France. And safeguard may look like it's a chapter 11. Okay. Uh, so, so, so just for the purpose of our listeners, the credit we are talking about is casino. Yeah, casino, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, casino is a French uh, retailer. Yeah. We have been under a massive problem for the last, uh, let's say, three years, three, four years. Um, 
In fact, conciliation is a kind of uh, you, you discuss with your current stakeholders for a limited number of months. It's uh, four or five months, if my memory is correct. And uh, in, during this period, the company is completely protected. Okay, but the, you want to find a new way, in fact, to uh, to save the company, and so you can also discuss about potential new money and so on. But during this period, in fact, uh, it's more a kind of agreement between all stakeholders. So it's why it's not a, a trigger of default, mm. what I understand, is but uh, because it's not. Uh, it's it's really what conciliation. So you have no enforcement, mm. and uh, and it's why at the moment uh, you you don't have triggers the CDS of casino. But I think yeah. that you have yeah. a, a new vote tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, on the name, and we will see what may happen, but. Uh, Once again, when, when you have a company which is a really deep trouble, uh, it's, uh, we are coming back e exactly like Credit Suisse yeah. about philosophy versus the term clause of the CDS contract. And one of my points with the CDS market is that we have, maybe, we have been maybe too far on the discrepancies between the legal aspect and the underlying philosophy of the product. Yeah, I agree. And I also have another issue. Uh, you know, we've had a rally from October to February in credit. And when they when they uh, when they were choosing the constituents of the series 39 crossover, cross uh, casino just about sneaked in to S39 because of the market rally. And now it is causing trouble in S39 as well by being a deep, deep distressed credit. So I think that that rule should also be changed, you know, in terms of look back. You, you cannot just look at the last 20 days and then allow some deep distressed credit, which is just an average spread of 2,400 because it's under 2,500 to make it into crossover. Mm. Now it is causing havoc, right? Okay. Yeah. So before we close, Benoit, I'm going to ask you, put a rapid fire round for you on return forecast okay quick view on what do we think about uh you know uh credit returns for uh the rest of the year so one do you believe investment grade will be positive negative uh returns for the rest of the year from the rest of the year starting from now starting from now i would say slightly positive yeah uh would investment grade beat rates oh good question uh yes Uh, would high, high yield returns for the rest of the year, positive or negative? For the rest of the year, starting from now, uh, it's complicated for the carry. Let me compute. I will say slightly negative. Slightly negative. Interesting. Yeah. So, which means you believe that uh, investment grade will beat high yield? Yeah, because I think that we have a, a huge level of compression at the moment yeah. and we haven't yet saw the complete impact of the start of the quantitative tightening. And so if you have a start to see earning recession, I think that we see some decompression of spread first, which is tricky with your question is that with the current level of carry at the moment in the market, exactly. it's exactly. not fairly easy uh, to answer. Yeah. Uh, 
But I still believe that you, you may face some spread decompression, especially if we start to see a recession. Hmm. Okay. I am probably in the slightly positive return camp in high yield. Uh, earnings recession may not be as severe as we thought. We shall see. Yeah. But we discussed about technicals and uh, yeah. we know that technicals is a big aspect. And yep. If you don't have a lot of supply and st you still have a lot of demands from uh, investors, yeah. I think you will be right and I will be wrong. <laughs> and also, I mean, just to add to the fact uh, there, we are not seeing much loan supply as well. And as a result, you know, CLOs and other sources are also buying bonds now. So that's an added technical uh, for high yield. Uh, so on that note, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we close this very engaging uh, podcast and we will see you next month uh, for our uh, next episode where we will have another guest. And uh, just to alert from this month, we'll be starting a US version of Credit Crunch. So that at the end of the month, we are going to see a US version now hosted by uh, Noel Hebert, uh, my US counterpart, who has been a guest on our uh, podcast a few times. Now, for any data and uh, research on uh, European credit strategy and any general macro credit data, please visit BISTRTE as always. So once again, thank you, Benvo, and thank you, listeners. Thank you, Mesh.